I downloaded the and I bought the game Farming Simulator 19. Um, <laughs> in case you're not aware, okay. I know you're not a big video game guy. I'm not really either, but uh, but I do like. I actually have a video game date this afternoon. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's cute with my neighbor. Oh, nice. What are you gonna play? <laughs> I don't know the names of any of them, mm. but he'll have he'll have something queued up. Um, you're just going to go in there and mash buttons and he's going to get mad. Uh, the- <laughs> <laughs> That's probably right. He's pretty generous. I played get video games with him one other time and I did horrible. Yeah. But he was laid back about it. Anyway, Farming Simulator 19 is uh, I was interested in it because like it's it's of the genre of game where um, you're just you're actually simulating. There's no other characters in the game as far as I can tell. I haven't played it that much because it's it's mind numbingly boring. Um, you're, you're literally, it's like mowing grass. You're riding around a tractor. You, you, uh, cultivate the field and then you plant seeds and then you put fertilizer down and you have to like buy tractors. You have to wait for it to grow. Yeah. And like (laughs) in practically real time, like it's, there's just nothing to do. You just like ride around in your tractor and look at stuff like there. There's nothing to interact. That sounds horrible. With. Yeah, it's re- it's really weird. And uh, did you pay money for it? Yeah, I paid thirty bucks for it. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. oh I'm sort of on God. vacation now, and I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll spend a couple days just sort of like playing a video game. And, uh, <laughs> but it's really like I was like, oh, you're probably gonna like talk to other farmers and like trades. No, there's no other characters. You're just like, uh, you're just a a, a a single person, like a last man on earth kind of thing. Like, and there's no other characters, and you're just riding tractors around and growing crops, and that's it. Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the 540 mostly anonymous American billionaires. So this week, we're talking about another couple of billionaires. I'm going to be talking about Leslie Alexander. And I'm talking about James Coulter. Uh, But before we do that, as we always do, let's do Billionaires in the News. Billionaires in the News. So Billionaires in the News this week comes from a segment I was listening to on uh, NPR, the show On Point. Meghna Chakrabarty. You guys know who I'm talking about. Even you, Chad, you know who I'm talking about. I, I do not. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can play dumb because you don't want to be pigeonholed as a NPR liberal. <laughs> the truth is, you know exactly who I'm talking about. <laughs> and this past week, I don't know, it was like Tuesday, maybe. I can't remember the day. Whenever I sent you that text, Chad, there was a, there was a segment about a billionaire who was basically trying to explain why capitalism was failing. And my ears perked up because of the work that we do here. Texted Chad and said, let's, uh, let's look into this. So when you texted me that, what you didn't know is that I had already watched a segment with the same guy on 60 Minutes. Ray Dalio? I think it's Dalio. It's got to be Dalio. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, uh, so I think he's pushing this letter pretty hard. Um, yeah, he's doing, uh, you know, press junkets for a letter that he posted to LinkedIn. <laughs> which Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, it's Just monstrous. Publishing to LinkedIn and then doing a press junket for the letter. I don't know. Link- yeah. I mean, I mean uh, you know, I... Who does well, this? Answer, billionaires. Yeah, do. I mean, I, I think that there may be ulterior motives involved. Uh, in the in the, the interview that you sent me and on 60 Minutes and not once, but twice in the letter, uh, he tells his billionaire origin story, which, you know, is like uh, it's a very, uh, pol- you know, like a sort of uh, stump speechy. Uh, I was born. Yeah, in, uh, I, yeah. With the- I heard it on the on the radio show that I heard and then read it in the essay. Yeah, so he... I came from a family that allowed me to have equal opportunities in the world, and now I'm a billionaire. Yeah, so he wasn't born rich. His dad was a jazz musician. He started investing in the stock market at age 12. 
Uh, and so it has this, this sort of rags to riches. He, like mowed lawns right. and all yeah. this kind and of so, stuff. So, you know, maybe he's maybe he's thinking about running for political office. I, I don't the, – the reason that I feel skeptical about that is because this guy's kind of off the wall and uh, and very secretive in a lot of ways. What's, what's secretive about him? I didn't oh, know that. yeah. I mean, I think this is something that we should probably talk about whenever Ray Dalio comes up in our random selector. But uh, he's the guy who is uh, uh, the inventor of radical transparency. Uh, which makes which sounds like the opposite of having secrets, uh, uh, right? It does. Which, sound which like yeah. that's how he describes it in the workplace. But like, um, uh, workplace workplace practices. I guess you're radically transparent inside the workplace. But you know, when you walk into uh, uh, Ray Dalio's hedge fund, which uh, you know, if you don't know who he is, it's Bridgewater uh, Hedge Fund. It's the largest one in the world. Uh, he has eighteen billion dollars. Right? He's a big. Big time billionaire. Uh, uh, all employees have to uh, store their cell phones uh, upon entry. Uh, they have to shred every piece of paper every day. Um, uh, oh, that's creepy. yeah. I mean, they, so like uh, only. Th- How is that? Trans- that sounds like radical opacity. Uh, yeah, I think it's radical transparency inside of the workplace, and then uh, and then, you know they have non disclosure and non compete agreements. Like outside of the workplace, you're not allowed to say anything about what goes on. Um, uh, this will be fascinating to talk about at some future date. Like it's it's a very you know like it's a okay. it's a long and involved story. Um, Didn't mean to do de- no. I think it's it's funny and weird. Uh, but anyway, all we're talking about today is this the fact that he is. Uh, self-promoting uh, like a boss. Uh, he is. Uh, he, he's got himself on TV, on radio. Uh, he's got people talking about this letter that he wrote that ostensibly is critiquing capitalism. Uh, uh, the big news story here, the headline is that uh, there are several billionaires who are not so sure that capitalism is working the way that it's supposed to because there is uh, massive wealth inequality and uh, lack of access to basic necessities like housing and healthcare and things like that. Let me just say, even if we were just to take this on the surface, like that's an incredibly banal realization. <laughs> yeah, 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 it is, right? Like, uh, but people, you know, but the news is like, oh my gosh, are things changing? Um <laughs> And, and we're not going to go into the letter. You know, it, the letter is in itself fascinating because it's a great example uh, of the, the the particular kind of billionaire brain disease that we've been talking about, where they think uh, that uh, they think that they are because they have done well in some area uh, that's made them a lot of money. They uh, they are some sort of. Uh, a uh, brilliant genius, and the letter is is a amazing example of him making like you know he's making claims about ontology, about epistemology, about a philosophy of history. I mean, it's all in there. Uh, zero citations w- without you know without demonstrating even the, the sort of passing familiarity with any anyone else uh, outside of his own. Who's ever had an idea? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so it's really funny. And I think that we should treat the the letter in some future episode in some form. But uh, all all we wanted to do was flag the uh, the uh, the the the, you know, phenomenon that's happening right now, which is that it seems like uh, a bunch of billionaires are recognizing uh, a, a shift in the political space. Uh, uh, in, in, in such that uh, uh, there is a, a real chance of a uh, left of center candidate um, uh, with left of center economic policies uh, uh, taking power uh, in the presidency and also in a wave election, right, that might uh, position uh, the House and the Senate uh, in, in a similar way, like that's a possibility. Right. And, and, and my theory, or at least like the conclusion that, that, that we come to, uh, by the end of this, uh, 22 page post on LinkedIn <laughs> is, uh, is that capitalism is actually, uh, doing pretty well. Uh, but if we kind of like modify it around the edges a little bit, uh, mainly uh, through bipartisan political commissions and listening to then it is going to be then it's going to be in a really yeah, good place. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it ends up being a defense of the status quo uh, and a, a sort of 
you know, insertion of uh, billionaires' opinions uh, into a discussion where they clearly don't belong. You know, they 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 want they're doing a little uh, reputation rehab, right? Like, but it's definitely veiled in sort of a kind of faux social justice rhetoric. A little bit, yeah. Know? I mean, um, I think that. I mean, it definitely has an audience and the audience is made very clear uh, in that. And so like he has a couple of taglines that he uses throughout the letter. One of them is. is was that goose in the uh, background? Yeah, you can hear that. Sorry, my cat uh, is, is walking around. <laughs> um, the letter has an audience and he states that pretty explicitly. It's centrist. He has a couple of taglines that run through it. Uh, one of the taglines is the problem is that capitalists typically don't know how to divide the pie well and socialists typically don't know how to grow it well, you know, which is like is some some stuff that you would hear in like a David Brooks column or something. Just just absolutely empty nothingness. Uh, and, and the uh, the other one. What is his other one? Oh yeah, the, the other one. He keeps uh, he keeps comparing uh, left populism and right populism. So like basically this oh, sort yeah. of like centrist line that is this is nonsensical, right? That uh, basically you know the, uh, the the sort of energy behind Bernie Sanders and the energy behind Trump are exactly the same thing. They're just manifestations of the same exact thing. And while it might be true that uh, there is. Uh, uh, economic insecurity to blame uh, uh, for those impulses, you know, at a very kind of zoomed out level uh, to compare left populism and right populism is a really messed up thing to do insofar as right populism is associated with uh, ethno states, authoritarianism, um, like, you know, and, and the, the worst uh, violent and exclusionary impulses of humankind, uh, whereas left populism is typically associated with things like a fairer redistribution of wealth, uh, more opportunities for more people, right? Like more rights. And, you know, yeah. like, you know so like the, yeah. the, the, the things that people associate uh, specifically as uh, specifically attached to left and right populism are completely different. Uh, and it's only the, the sort of um, it's only the sort of centrist uh, 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 proponent of the status quo who could who could confuse those two things in their mind, right? Like that uh, that this it it is a piece of rhetoric that centrists uh, find expedient. You know, uh, it's like oh, that's a good thing to say. Uh, we're not either of those things, uh, so let's pretend that those two things are the same. Uh, and we're the rational. So, what's center. the big takeaway? What's the big takeaway from uh, the big takeaway is that uh, the billionaires are doing a little reputation rehab. Uh, they want to be part of the conversation. Uh, uh, you know, they're <laughs> are they feeling left out? No, they. I mean, I think they absolutely are. Right, they're hedging their bets, which is what they do. I mean, it's a hedge fund, right? Uh, if there is some sort of uh, you know insurgent left populist movement uh, that wants to. Uh, 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 you know, uh, unseat them. Yeah. That wants to get rid of the category of billionaire altogether or something, right? Like they, they want to be part of the conversation. So they, they, you keep hearing them say things like, oh yes, I'm for raising taxes on the rich, but what we do, what we need to make sure of when we raise those taxes is that the tax money is absolutely earmarked in a particular, in particular ways that it's going to help uh, middle-class and low-income people. And also uh, we need to make sure that it, it doesn't negatively impact productivity. Right. And so like they'll, they'll add on all of these caveats to uh, tax increases that look like a kind of rational centrist position that people can get behind. Like, Oh yes, yes, yes. We're definitely for raising taxes, but only if it meets these certain criteria uh, that we establish, right, uh, as the ruling class, uh, that essentially means that it doesn't impact us negatively. Well, th well, thank you, Chad, for that really acute analysis. And thank you, Goose, for your contributions as well.
All right, Chad, so who, who are you talking about today? We're talking about James Jim Coulter. Uh, he is one of the founding partners of TPG Capital, uh, which is a private equity firm. They do some other things too, but it's mainly a private equity firm. Uh, unlike a lot of other private equity firms, we'll talk about what they are in a minute, but unlike a lot of other ones, uh, they invest heavily in technology products. So that's what sort of sets them apart. Uh, otherwise, this guy's not particularly interesting. Uh, like, again, every billionaire, especially every billionaire who lives in the West Coast, uh, they uh, he has a bunch of like TED Talk looking things that, um, yeah. you know, that Bloomberg or other people put out. And we should really start developing a more refined taxonomy of billionaire. You know, like yeah. the TED Talk billionaire is a specific sort of genus. It is. Of and most of them are in California. A lot of them are tech people. Like tech people love being on camera. Um, the private equity people, uh, I think less so, but um, it, it depends on who they are. Like this guy, you know, there's a bunch of YouTube videos of him talking. His big line, he just says the same thing all the time, which is data is the new oil, uh, which is on its face nonsense uh, because <laughs> data is not a non-renewable resource uh, and and the production and maintenance of data entirely uh, relies on fossil fuels. And, and so like the, the analogy doesn't make any sense to begin with, but this is his big thing. So, well, I like, mean, it makes sense in the um, only the most sort of. Yeah, it's worth money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's worth big money. But anyway, so like, you know, what I thought we would do is to talk about private equity because it, uh, at least me and, and I think, you know, talking to you uh, before the show, like neither of us really knew what private equity was other than the kind of. I still yeah, don't know what it is. It's up to you to convince me. Uh, I'm not me sure I know what it is either. But, I know you know, like I read a bunch of definitions. Uh, there's a really great book on it by a journalist uh, named Josh Kosman, uh, who, uh, 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 you know, he wrote an entire book on the sort of history and uh, of um, leveraged buyouts and private equity and how it works. And, and it's pretty good. Um, a lot of information there. The the only thing I knew, so like the, I I knew about Mitt Romney and Bain Capital, um, and the idea that you know these corporate raiders take over businesses and then they shutter them and fire everybody, uh, and somehow they make money out of that. That was never entirely clear, you know, to me. I think it's not clear to most people, uh, like how that process works. Um, so we could talk a little bit about that today, just about how private equity works. So I think it is it is relatively shocking in the sense that it's the most profitable return on investment uh, that big investors get. It's it's typically uh, above 20 percent return on investment. And so why is that? What is it about this market that is producing such high returns? <laughs> well, that's a that's a great question. And I think that you're going to get a couple of different answers. Uh, the scariest answer is that it's a huge bubble, uh, which is that the high rates of return on leveraged buyouts by private equity firms uh, is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. So investors see that they're getting high returns, and so they're more willing to invest in new private equity projects uh, without necessarily, uh, you know, doing due diligence to find out if it's a good investment or not. Um, and so, a lot of people, including this guy who wrote the book, Costman, uh, uh, in like 2012 or something after the financial crisis, uh, they think that like you see that private equity buyout prices are just going up and up and up and they think that they're really inflated. Um, and so one reason that they're so profitable is because they're able to tell investors that they are profitable. Right. And, you know, like uh, but that, but the, the other reason is because they're able to do a lot of tricks and, and that's how they got profitable uh, in the first place. I think that, uh, I think it'll become, I think that probably the clearest way to, to talk about it is with specific examples. And so I'll tell you the, the story of the very first uh, leveraged buyout uh, from 1972 uh, it was uh, the purchase of Vapor Corporation, uh, which was formerly a division of Singer Sewing Machines and the Vapor Corporation. V-A-P-O-R. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why it was called Vapor, because they produced uh, door opening mechanisms uh, for mass transit vehicles. 
So like the pool door, the, the, you know, the arm with the hinge in, on the bus that opens See, the, this is such a classic thing. That's like central to the thesis of the show, you know, like billionaires are billionaires because they cornered some weird market, you know, like door handles yeah. for mass transit. Like that's a thing. Yeah. Of course it's a thing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, that's exactly right. Like as, as soon as you like note that somebody somewhere has to be producing these things, uh, then then you sort of understand that it's a market. That's exactly what private equity uh, realized. Like the the reason that they picked that company is because mass transit vehicles aren't going away. Uh, it's a rel- relatively steady income stream. Uh, and they all need doors, right? Like they all need, and, and these doors have been around for a while. And it, it seems like, you know, in other words, it's a small, but very stable business. Right. And right. and that yeah. like, we have this stereotype from like the 1980s movies uh, about wall street, uh, uh, like the movie wall street uh, in which, uh, like something happens to a business, like it becomes vulnerable for some reason, either through like a bad market or like mismanagement or something like that. And then some corporate raider comes in and like takes over the business. Um, that's not how it works at all. They actually try to identify stable businesses and, and especially stable businesses that have to do with infrastructure. Hmm. Um, this is why Jim Coulter's firm that invests in tech is so unusual among the um, uh, private equity firms is because tech was typically seen as too fickle uh, for private equity people. Um, they wanted stuff like bus doors and uh, uh, stuff that had been around for a while, um, but was relatively small and they could buy it up. Right. So uh, we're, we'll take, we'll like, we'll talk for a minute later about like some of the stuff. I mean, I can just tell you now, it, I think it's instructive just to like hear it at the outset. So like, yeah, later um, on. let's take, um, KKR, for instance, I, they had an interesting portfolio. All their portfolios look like this. It's just a mishmash of different industries. Uh, I think KKR is second or third largest. Um, the one we're talking about, TPG Capital, is the fourth largest. The other two you've probably heard of, which are Blackstone and Carlyle, and they have various conspiracy theories about the Carlyle Group. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think Alex Jones is very into them. I'm not sure. Anyway, so here we K- should get K- him on the show sometime. <laughs> yeah, I know we should. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> did you say Carlisle Group? <laughs> um, uh, but uh, so KKR, here's here's what here's stuff that they own, just in alphabetical order: um, Academy Sports and Outdoors, Akiona Energy, Alliance Boots, America's Best Contacts and Eyeglasses, Beatrice Foods. Uh, Borden, the dairy company, hmm. uh, Colonial Pipeline, Del Monte Foods, uh, Energy Future Holdings, Frog Design Incorporated, GoDaddy, uh, Hospital Corporation of America, um, Masonite International. Masonite, you know, there's a there's an infrastructure. Well, here's just a question. I mean, how 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 would this portfolio? How does the nature of this portfolio differ from like a hedge fund portfolio? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Well, hedge funds invest in businesses. Private equity firms buy the businesses. Sort of. So this is the scam. And it, and it really is a scam uh, uh, because they don't actually produce anything. So here's what they do. A private equity firm identifies a business that is vulnerable to a takeover or some people that want to, you know, make a deal and, and engage in a takeover with a private equity firm. Doesn't matter. Uh and they put together some portion of the money uh, as a down payment, just like you would when you're buying a house. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they put down between five and ten percent, uh, and uh, and then they find investment partners for the rest of the buying price of a publicly traded company, right? And and they're usually public tra- publicly traded companies, and the way that they take control of them is they go out and they buy a majority share of the stocks in, in the company, and then they. Uh, are able to make decisions about its future uh, uh, because they're controlling interest. And so uh, they don't really put up their own money. They put up some portion of the money. Then they'll get like a bank to fund the rest of the 90% in the form of loans. Um, So they'll take, you know, like a bank gives you a mortgage, a bank will give them a mortgage on this business. 
Um, so, so far, it's just like buying any other sort of big thing that you have to take out a loan for. Do they but get they do, do they get sweet interest rate deals or is it just like any other thing? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm sure that they do. I don't know what the interest rate on those loans are, um, but I do know that the loans are uh, balloon payments, right? So like we're balloon loans uh, and I'm, I'm not I don't know the mechanics of a balloon uh, payment loan, but like. The idea is that you don't have to pay for a few years down the road. And all of these companies, all of the uh, private equity companies are selling the businesses at about five years out. So they, you know, like when the loans come due is about the same time they get rid of the business. Uh, what they do is they find a stable and profitable business and then they buy a majority share of that business. And then when, they when they've taken control, they force the business to take out loans against its assets. So if you own a factory or if you own a bunch of inventory or whatever, like you take out equity loans against that fixed capital and they use that money to pay off the other loans. And then anything that the company is making in profit, uh, they're able to pocket. I uh, see. So that's So they just the leverage story. the shit out of the company. And then yes. extract some profit off of the top. That Yes. And that's why it's called a leveraged buyout, uh, uh, because they forced the company to leverage itself. Uh, um, but that's not really even the, uh, uh, that, the half of it. Um, when you use the, when you make the company take out loans to pay off the other loans that were used to buy the company in the first place, essentially making the company finance its own purchase by a third party, you also uh, can count those loans as uh, capital expenditures, which is what businesses uh, spend. Capital expenditures for a business are, is like, you know, you, you buy a new factory or you build a new factory. Um, you, you're doing things to expand your business. They're capital investments that you make in the expansion of your business. Right. But they're, they're able to, the private equity firms are able to count these loans as capital expenditures. And the reason they want to do that is because the capital expenditures are, uh, more or less untaxed, right? Like the, they're big tax write-offs. Um, and, uh, uh, they're able to, um, uh, significantly reduce the tax burden of the company that they bought, thereby increasing its profit. Uh, so that's even more profit. Um, and then there's the whole, you know, we're not even going to get into the, uh, uh, what, what is the, the carried interest loophole, which really only affects like 2000 people in the United States, but all of these private equity guys, uh, are able to pay a very low tax rate on the income that they've been. Okay, so all of that sounds so. interesting and sketchy and is clarifying for me. But now I'm wondering, how does this factor into the big picture of the economy? That I mean, that's a great question. Like one, I think that um, so we have to talk about like the structure of what happens with a private equity. Uh, uh, leverage buyout after the buyout happens. So it's like, you know, this is why they have a bad reputation because what they do to try to squeeze ever more profit out of the business that they've purchased is to close factories, lay people off, uh, shutter businesses, uh, fire management, uh, any sort of um, uh, austerity measure they can impose, they do because that makes them and their investors more money. And that's why, like, that's why Mitt Romney got criticized for like destroying communities and uh, and and making his fortune off the back of the American worker is because like that's how they make the businesses profitable and keep such high rates of return. Um, what they found is like you know so after the private equity firm has bought this business and sort of extracted as much capital as they can out of it. Well, those austerity measures that they imposed are going to sort of take their toll on the business and it's going to stop performing as well as it used to perform uh, when they bought it, whenever it was doing well. And uh, uh, so like about at about five or six years out, you'll see them either break the business into parts and sell it off for parts or, uh, it goes into bankruptcy or they sell it off altogether or, you know, like whatever, some sort of weird financial. But they stuff basically happens. destroy good businesses over. over yeah, the course they of eat them. They're they're parasites who suck the lifeblood out of businesses that are performing uh, just fine. 
and then they leave them to die. Um, uh, so yeah, that's all they do. That's how they make money. Um, and before you think that you're innocent of that uh, horrible and predatory uh, capitalist practice, uh, you should realize that some of the biggest investors are university endowments and pension funds. Like both of my parents were public school teachers in Pennsylvania, and the Pennsylvania re uh, retirement uh, teachers retirement system is one of the biggest investors in uh, private equity uh, firms. And I, so, like you asked earlier, like uh, how does it tie into the larger picture? Well, like I think it 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 it's an underappreciated unless you're like into economics and finance i think that it's it's not particularly well appreciated just how large of a, a part of the economy private equity is um it is massive um uh, but secondly it fits into the larger picture because what they do and this is something i was thinking about and i'm not sure like what my my opinion on it is yet uh but you might make the argument that private equity is a force that runs counter to innovation because um uh you know they are they're looking for stable businesses and trying to maintain their stability but of course like over the process of the the private equity uh project they are sort of like dismantling the business tightening its belt you know getting rid of a lot of people and on the other end of it it kind of gets destroyed and maybe creates room for innovation. So it's like, you know, not that I'm like incredibly concerned about innovation here, but like, it's interesting to think like, what is the overall effect of private equity on the economy? Is it conservative or does it generate innovation? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, huh. But I'm sure that like economics people talk about that. Um, uh, so like, but I think maybe what you're asking is what is the effect of private equity on infrastructure? And there's a very obvious and clear and non sort of theoretical uh, uh, answer to that, which is that uh, they're going to own it all soon uh, because uh, you may have heard uh, in uh, 2017, I, I, it was like in the middle of the year, at some point, whenever Trump went to Saudi Arabia, He's like uh, he's best buddies with uh, uh, the guy from uh, Blackstone Capital, uh, Steve something, Steve Shinehart Wiggs. I don't remember his last name. Um, he uh, uh, when Trump was in Saudi Arabia, that they took that opportunity to announce a 40 billion dollar infrastructure deal with the government, uh, the government with the uh, uh, royal family of Saudi Arabia. And so what, what's going to happen is Saudi Arabia has this uh, massive public infrastructure fund. Why do they have that? I don't know. They're a monarchy, but they're using that money to invest in public infrastructure in the United States through public-private partnerships. And Blackstone is the private equity firm that they're partnering with. Oh, wow. Um, and so like this, it, it's a, it's a, that is a very, very big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So like, so Trump's uh, friend who has a property, you know, like adjacent to Mar-a-Lago uh, gets in this $40 billion deal with Saudi Arabia to remake the infrastructure of the United States uh, using Saudi money. I, I mean, it's, it's <sighs> insane that that's happening, but like, that's, that's literally sort of, that's just where things are headed. Scary. It is. It is very weird that like, I like it's so stupid. Like all of these people name their firms like Blackwater, Blackstone, Blackrock, Black. There's even a Black Cube in in Israel, right? Like uh, they, it's like uh, uh, you know, like how do I? I, I want to do a new company, and I want to make sure we have good public relations. Maybe I'll name it uh, Evil Money Guy, yeah. <laughs> like Evil Monopoly Man uh, LLC, or, or you know, whatever. Like, I mean. Yeah. Like, what are we supposed to think? Like, you call the place Blackwater. <laughs> Blackstone. Black yeah. Fuck. All right, man. Leslie Alexander. You've been waiting for this. You've been into this. Yeah. yeah. I'm super excited about Leslie Alexander. Uh, who is he again? <laughs> He's the sports guy, remember? Oh yeah, uh, the owner of the of the NBA Rockets, NBA mm -hmm. Rockets, Houston Rockets. If you've heard of him, you've heard of him because of his ownership of this major basketball team. 
which he acquired back in 1993. And he had phenomenal success like very, very early on in his ownership. They won back-to-back championships in the mid-1990s. He purchased the uh, the the franchise for, I feel like I've seen competing numbers for this, but I'm looking at a Forbes article right now. It says $85 million in 1993. And then late in 2017, he sold it for $2.2 billion, which is like a record-breaking sale. Um, and the, the <laughs> you sound really impressed. Um, yeah, I have no idea what uh, teams go for these days. Uh, it sounds impressive. Um, so how much did he sell it for? $2.2 billion. So like... 25 times what he paid for it more or less. are you just doing that off the top of your head because that's exactly right uh I'm, you know I, I don't like to brag about being um a math genius i didn't realize your arithmetic skills were so strong but yes 25 times the amount that he paid for it and i think like the the he's a billionaire but really the reason that he is a billionaire is because he sold the rockets for this amount of money. He's not like a mega billionaire. He's he's worth like a couple billion bucks. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, he he sold the rockets to this guy. Uh, what's his name? Tillman Fertitta, <laughs> who yeah, who's the owner of Golden Nugget Casinos and oh, yeah. Landry's Seafood, uh, which is a conglomerate of restaurants that like includes Joe's crab shack Mm. and the rainforest cafe and Bubba Gump shrimp company. Um, Those are like all the worst things. Well, it depends on who you ask. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, um, first of all, are there any Bubba Gump shrimp companies outside of times square? Like it's, it's shocking to me. That was the, how old is the movie now? Like 20 years old? Maybe? 90s. It was a 90s movie. Yeah. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. There's still a restaurant based on a movie that really hasn't held up well. I mean, the prevailing opinion about Forrest Gump these days is I think that it's a pretty bad movie. Yeah. Uh, and somehow, I mean, you know. and You probably cried when you saw it, though. I'm did guessing I you cried. I you probably maybe, did. Maybe. Maybe. You probably did. I, you know, I cried everything, though. <laughs> um, well, I mean, look, Fertitta is like an aggressively lowbrow type dude. He's got a reality show called Billion Dollar Buyer, where he travels around the country and like uh, meets with people who are trying to sell him like hospitality product concepts. Um <laughs> And it sounds like the most boring television show. I've never seen it, but you know, um, he's the owner of the Houston Rockets now. Anyway, like back to Leslie Alexander, most of what she'll learn about him is related to, to sports news. But if you dig a little deeper into his background, you'll also learn that he owns a 18% stake or owned, I, I don't know what he owns at this particular moment, but at one point for a while owned a significant stake of the company First Marblehead, which is now uh, rebranded as Cognition Financial. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a company that is basically, they're basically middlemen for processing student loans. So they underwrite and process and securitize loans. They provide like back end management and like software solutions, I think, for for lenders. So they like repackage these loans into bundles and then, you know, set up risk management solutions so that the banks like Bank of America feel more comfortable lending money to kids who can't afford it. (laughs) I mean, that's my, that's my like really dumbed down, like layman's understanding of what, what they do. I mean, it's kind of fishy. I mean, anytime I hear uh, middleman and bundled loans, (laughs) right. That's that's a red flag. I read a bunch of stuff on it. It it just gets like, if you don't know what you're talking about and I don't, it it just, you get bogged down pretty quickly in these sort of dense explanations of what it is they actually do. I mean, I, I sort of stop and pause at like four profit processing of student loans. So they're extracting somehow money out of the student loan payment process, which on the surface seems kind of sketchy um, just because, you know, I I think student loans are uh, 
a problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. We can talk. We can talk more about that. I mean, I'll, I'll just say you know a couple of more basic things about Leslie Alexander. There's a uh, he. There's some kind of litigation trail that I that I followed online, and it, I I don't think it wound up um, resulting in any kind of like serious fines or prosecution, I think things must have gotten dropped because it sort of peters out and I can't really find where these lawsuits really, what they really amounted to. But it's Mm -hmm. clear that um, there was a situation in the mid 2000s where Leslie Alexander appeared to be engaging in some kind of insider trading where he he sold off a large stake in First Marblehead right before the 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 stock plummeted and there was some kind of lawsuit that uh, he was uh, listed as one of the defendants where uh, shareholders were pissed off I think mm-hmm. about that um, and there's you know there's another sort of a funny article, uh, a little blurby sort of article that Mother Jones published a few years ago called the the evil the Mother Jones Guide to Evil MBA Owners. Um and he's <laughs> he's listed in I'm surprised this, this guy's even in like the top five. I mean, he, you know, I mean I maybe he's not. There's a bunch of them there, but he's listed they sort of uh, knock him for cashing out like three hundred million dollars in stock right before the financial meltdown. And this first that's more or less par for the course among this the class of people we've been discussing. <laughs> right, I think so too. Yeah, I mean, well, like when I first started researching him, like I, I, it was it was a little bit difficult to to find anything sort of like egregious about him. You know, I mean, this is egregious, obviously, but compared to you know the folks we were dealing with last episode or Haslam, at least, it's a it's kind of an interesting uh, scenario, just because in almost every case, it seems like sports teams owners are people who purchase the team as a vanity project after they were already billionaires. Right. Like Haslam or like, you know, Mark Cuban or whoever. Or this guy who uh, bought it from, this from guy Leslie bought Alexander. It cheap yeah. And yeah. made and became a billionaire uh from the sports franchise itself. Yeah. He flipped uh, the script on that for sure. Yeah. yeah. So Yeah. So that so so anyway, um the Mother Jones thing, they knock them for cashing out early on that stock. And they also note, so another thing that comes up about him is that he's like a serious animal rights activist. Mm -hmm. So he reportedly donated a bunch of money to like animal rights groups who were convicted of terrorism, um, which I don't even know how to process that information. I'm sure there's more more to that story that I could learn about. He's a vegetarian. That's be, that's one of that's one of you know. Great if he was like donating to like the Animal Liberation Front or something. I think it was something like that. I don't. Yeah. It, um, I could look more into it, but basically, you know, that's that's one of his big causes. I know that he gave a bunch of money in the aftermath of of Hurricane Harvey. But I mean, the main interesting thing to think of is his complicity in the student debt crisis, if we want to call it a crisis. I think it's a crisis. Some people argue that it's not a crisis. Do you think it's a crisis? You know, uh, that's a that's a good question. I think that uh, I so I talked to an economist about this one time, and uh, I'm not sure that I uh, trust uh, economists uh, just as a, you know, as a field of intellectual activity. Economists don't have a great track record with a lot of things. Uh, but I did talk to an economist once uh, shortly after the Frontline documentary uh, about the student debt crisis came out. And, uh, you know, and the Frontline was a little like sort of fear mongering in the sense that it was like, oh, you know, you thought that the uh, the financial crisis of 2009 was bad. Uh, we're about to have another one. Uh, but what this guy was saying is that the sort of wealth base of uh, the United States is mainly in real estate, right? Like that it's in uh, land and, uh, uh, um, you know, fixed capital that people have. Um, if everybody, you know, like defaulted on their loans tomorrow, it wouldn't, it would make up a, a small percentage of the national, you know, say mortgage okay. market. Like, okay. so like just in terms of total capital that's affected by student loans as opposed to uh say real estate, which uh, the two you know, which was uh the basis of the failure of the financial system in two thousand nine. 
like it, it just it, you know what he was saying is that it's not <clears throat> it's not really possible for it to have that well, so, severe an effect. But well, so uh, that may be a fair point. But is that the benchmark that we need to hit in order to call it a crisis? <laughs> like, does it have to be the most yeah. insane like financial catastrophe? I mean, you know, yeah. it seems to me that like based on my sort of casual understanding of 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 this issue, a lot of people are affected by it, and there could be a lot of solutions yeah. that we could try to work toward that we're not working toward hard enough. Um, and it just sucks that people have to like leverage themselves in order to even have a chance at moving up the chain. So, so, so uh, frequently. Yeah. yeah. Don't get me wrong. Uh, student debt is absolutely a crisis. Um, but in terms of like global, uh, financial meltdown, uh, I think the idea is that, uh, uh, it, it's, uh, frontline was likely overstating the case a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but in terms of like, um, uh, the impact in real people's lives um uh, student debt is absolutely a terrible crisis and something that should be uh wiped out so what's the i mean like what's the devil's advocate sort of argument here i mean if someone was justifying the work of cognition financial they're 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 basically saying well we're making it possible for students to get the resources they need to even begin to you know educate themselves and 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 pull themselves up through the system. That's kind of uh, where no they would idea. have to come down. I, I mean, mean, it just, you know, I like, I have no idea what they're doing. Uh, if they're bundling debt, you know, like I imagine that they're bundling like high risk debt, maybe they're bundling loans that private loans that people take out, uh, to go to for-profit colleges or something like that. Uh, you know, because yeah. maybe the loans are more high risk. Uh, like, I, I have no idea. I doubt there's any real justification for it. Uh, it sounds like a way to, uh, exploit the debt of other people to make money, uh, for a billionaire. I mean, that's, what, that's what it sounds like to me, right? Like, yeah. it doesn't sound like he's providing any necessary function. Um, it's just another one of these examples of like, you know, if you can get close to capital, you can siphon off a large amount of capital without other people really like figuring out what's going on. Yeah. That's just how it all. I mean, it's 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 really simple in a, in a certain way. Just get near the riches, you know, and there's a huge amount of money that's being that's 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 pouring through channels into higher education, you know, and that's one yeah. one place where you can begin to siphon off some of the some of the rich juice yeah i think that that's like that's really the thing that uh as soon as we started talking about billionaires just became really starkly obvious uh which is that all of them all of the forms of uh high return investment that exist in the united states are um cordoned off from most of the population because right. the, the barrier to entry is very high, right? Like right. you have to have a pretty big stake to buy in uh, to whether it's venture capital or private equity uh, or, um, you know, whatever else. Like uh, uh, there, it, it, these like these forms of uh, uh, in these investment interests uh, or hedge funds, right? These investment in instruments are just not available to most people, right? And right. So, and that's whatever. the whole game, right? You know. Yeah. And okay, okay. So, it, it, speaking of high barriers to entry, there's one final thing about Leslie Alexander that I wanted to mention, um, which is uh, within the last couple of years, he he's established his own billionaires wine club. Uh, called Société du Vin in Bridgehampton, New York, that has a entry price tag of fifty thousand dollars, and is limited to like uh, a membership of between something like seventy five and one hundred people. So this super exclusive billionaires wine club, where you can go, and I guess what your fifty thousand dollars buys you is access to the club, your own private wine cellar. And an opportunity to attend these like hugely exclusive wine tasting events. I think you do get your money back if you choose to back out, but then there's also like annual membership fees. But in any event, it's just like another, like it's hard to imagine a more exclusive sort of club concept than Societe du Vin. I wonder, like, you know, like I wonder what you get. Do you just get, you know, fancy wine? Is that it? Um, 
I'm not even sure you get wine. I think you get to store your wine. I think there's some, there's some, there's some. You're wait. You're buying a. You're investing in a wine cellar. Basically, like with a, near other people's wine cellar. So you go mm. and you store your wine, and then you get to hang out with billionaires and be like, "You want to try this awesome wine?" So you know, yeah, that's the kind of guy he is. man um looking ahead to next episode we got to do another episode uh yeah let's get ready for the next one uh what we're gonna do is uh choose the billionaires that we're gonna talk about next time all right get that roulette wheel going okay And the winner is, oh my God, it's H. Ross Perot. Oh my God. You Okay, I've got to say something about it. Now I'm going to wait for next episode. All this right. is crazy. I have Chairman a personal story Systems. about yeah. H. Ross Perot. All right. Well, uh, you know, I will say that this is H. Ross Perot Jr., uh, elder son of Ross Perot Sr. Oh, okay. Is, is, is Ross Perot alive? I actually don't even know. He's one of those people Dude. who exists... Spoiler alert. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's spin it again. Uh, the winner is uh, Scott Simplot of J.R. Simplot Company, heir of potato products. Oh, my. He, he is the supplier of French fries to McDonald's. This is amazing. <laughs> okay. Episode five is going to be the best episode yet. <laughs> I guarantee it. Oh, wow. I, I want both of these so bad. Which one do you want? I like um, dude, I don't care. Which one do you want? I Which one do you want? You can pick. I mean, I want to talk about infrastructure, so I'm going to go with French fried potatoes. All right. Um, I'm interested I'll, in agriculture. I'll choose Perot. Maybe right. I'll give me an opportunity to talk about, you know, partisan politics. And, did you meet you know, Ross Perot? Is that your story? I'm not going to, I'm not going to just right. divulge this <laughs> information so readily. <laughs> oh, wow. I've, I have really high expectations. Now. <laughs> it's going to be good. All right. Um, okay. Well, as always, we really appreciate you guys listening. We're going to try to put the next one out sooner rather than later. Um, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>